in 2009, I had the idea to buy billionaires.com and the owner wanted 1.2 million for it and we followed up every two to four months for 12 years and bought it uh, just a little bit under two years ago. Um, and so we acquired it for multiple reasons. One is if we meet one new billionaire, which we have many times over, we figure it would be worth it long term. Um, but also we just had a premise that if we studied billionaires, we'd become smarter, we'd learn how they think, we'd learn how to add value to them, we'd learn what is a commonality that all billionaires want, uh, and then we could create the type of value that would, that would bring the billionaires to us more consistently. Uh, we've now interviewed 22 billionaires, uh, including Mark Cuban, Jeff Hoffman, Larry Namer, Mitzi Perdue, Dr. Bharat Sanghani, uh, who's one of his team members, was here today. And it is proven that the media that you consume changes how your brain works. It's, it's proven that the inputs you know, return an output. It's, it's how you look at the world, the lens, the ideas you have. That's why it's important to build these mental models by listening to all these investors on stage. You're hearing from 70 people between today and tomorrow if you don't miss half the day networking outside. And out of those 70 people, I bet at least 10 say something really insightful that could change how you do business, how you structure a deal. Um, just like Patrick, who comes from a big real estate family in Arizona, had never heard of the QSBS. So Hubert mentioning that is something that he took away, even as a panelist speaking on stage, sharing expertise. So if we could get more billionaire ideas into our brain, probably good things will happen. If you want to learn how to play basketball, you could learn from me, just playing, I play pickup basketball once a month and not, not too good at it. Uh, or you could learn, learn from a, a Duke player who may go pro next year, um, that'd be better. Uh, or you could learn from this guy. And if you haven't yet learned how to play basketball by reading the books and watching the videos of LeBron and Kobe and Jordan, and you haven't studied the pro players, why would you ever go and read books written by the college players, right? That, that makes no sense at all, right? That doesn't make logical sense. So there's over 200 books written by billionaires. How many people in here have read more than five books by a billionaire? Looking carefully, zero hands, zero people in the room have read more than five books written by a billionaire. We've all read probably at least 50, 100, 200, 500 books in our career, mostly by people who are good at marketing their books but are not billionaires. They are not winners in the game of capitalism. So we should all go to the pro players first uh, and forget the college players till you get through those. 700 videos on YouTube that we have identified um, and how many people have watched over 10 videos from a billionaire on YouTube? So good 10, 20, good 20, 20 some people have watched more on YouTube. And maybe that's why the book answer is low. You prefer podcasts or YouTube, but still 20% of the room at best. Um, you've probably watched a lot more than 10 YouTube videos in your life, mostly from non-billionaires. And then have you even consumed 1% of the billionaire insights that you could for free out there? So we want to aggregate this information at billionaires.com. We actively are. And my vision is to interview 100 of them. We, we know every one of them is private. Every one of them is busy. People like to tell me that when I say, oh, do you, do you mind if we interview the one, the billionaire you just talked about? And they say, oh, no, they're very private or they're very busy. Uh, we know that's true. So we don't have a video crew. We don't do a telephone conversation. We don't even need their contact details. We just ask for answers to three questions over email that are very insightful, and you can read all their answers on billionaires.com for free from these interviews. It takes five minutes of their time to answer our questions. I had to email Mark Cuban 14 times till he answered my questions. 
But out of the 22 billionaires, 17 of them were cold emailed. And then I've got some referrals. Over time, I hope it builds up and we get a lot of referrals from our community. Um, so it's important that I explain how we're going about the process. Uh, Jeff Hoffman gave the best talk we've had. Over a thousand speakers have spoken at our events in the same demographic as this room, and half of the room is in tears because of his talk. You can stream that for free at billionaires.com. You for sure should if you haven't already, um, because you'll just see his message is so strong and powerful for everyone here in the room to listen to. Um, I'm going to go through some books now that everyone here should read. Uh, all, nobody had read more than five books on billionaires, so I know you haven't read all the books I'm about to mention. So there's going to be at least one book for each and every one of you to buy. Um, you can't go wrong buying these books. We've, we've read dozens of books by billionaires, and these are the most powerful ones so far that we have consumed. This one is uh, by Tillman Fertetta. He owns uh, the Houston Rockets, as well as the Rainforest Cafe, as well as 646 other restaurants, um, self-made billionaire. He says, even in a strong market, he wants to be well-capitalized, aggressive, and be the best of the best. Not the best just because he's well-capitalized, but the best operationally. So he talks about looking at the 95% that's going well and what 5% is not going well, and then attack that vigorously and make it better. And by doing that, you can eat the weak who didn't care about the details, didn't look at the details, and they were sloppy and lazy. Maybe it was owned by a private equity firm that was distracted because they bought a whole basket of assets. And so by eating the weak, it doesn't mean eating the mom and pop who isn't as well capitalized. It just means someone who's not operating at the level that he does. He talks about wor worrying about every detail and then many examples about knowing your numbers and said with him, you're out if you don't know your numbers. So definitely check out that book. And all of these books are on Audible. I know most of us consume books that way instead of in paperback form. Um, next one here, this is actually my number one favorite one. I've listened to it twice on Audible. Um, Steve Schwarzman is a founder of Blackstone. Um, super smart billionaire, and he talks about how when he started Blackstone, he had two divisions. He had an M&A division, which brought in consistent fees, and then he had an L LBO division, leveraged buyout division, where he'd bring in lumps of profits and fees at a time. And by doing both, they would inform each other and create a steady business model that would have jumps in profitability. Um, but then the, it made him smarter doing both types of work, but then he would add on a commodities division. And similar to Richard Branson, you would find someone maybe that was unhappy at Goldman, and maybe at Goldman they were making 10 to 30 million a year, but then Blackstone would say, well, we want to get in commodities, and you've been running the commodities desk at Goldman for 22 years, and all the institutions love you and jump at your every word. Come over to Blackstone, and you'll be our 50-50 partner and run our commodities division, and you could make 50 million or 120 million a year. We're not going to limit you like Goldman. You're not one of 192 partners. Uh, and then he built out Blackstone that way. So if the commodities division knows that all the shipments just tripled in cost overnight or nothing's moving and the containers have all stopped, then in their railroad deal, they'll negotiate an option to knock down the price based on the price of commodities. And it would inform the other tentacles of the octopus model, but also make the business more robust and diversified in case of something like COVID happening, that they have multiple ways to grow revenue and be smarter than others in the marketplace. He also talked about how other people would join Blackstone and he would tell them, We'll probably agree on many things, but you're going to want to chase many rabbits, and I want to go after a big elephant. And he says he likes to do really big things that have big consequences and not do things that are small and scattered and all over the place and chasing 500 opportunities. Um, so again, it comes back to the focusing of, of your energy uh, as a family or private investor. And then he says it right in the subtitle of the book, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. He, expect, he expected excellence from everyone around him. He said anything less than excellence was unacceptable. 
And so they wanted to raise things to a level of excellence across the board, and that's what he expected of himself, his partners, and, and others around him. And that's a common theme among many of the billionaires that we've been studying. Uh, this is a private jet tour I took with um, Group RMC just about a week and a half ago. We went and toured 3 million square feet of real estate. We were in five cities over two days. And I met them at 400 million in AUM. They went to 3 billion in AUM over the last six years. It's exploded. So related to these billionaire ideas, I just wanted to point out how they did that because I got to spend two days on the plane and touring assets with them. They acquire high quality assets from high quality sellers below their market value because the sellers were forced to sell. They had a seven year private equity model where the institution bought 92 assets in the portfolio and they need to sell some off before the end of the quarter. So they would buy it from forced sellers. They look for consistent cash flow. Interesting for many people here in the room, they've never once promised their investors 15%, 20% IRRs. They promised conservative, you know, eight to 10%, eight to 12% returns and they manage $3 billion now. They also have a very unique investment structure and a unique time horizon. They're evergreen in nature. So I just want to point out some of those insights from that trip. Uh, Mark Cuban's book, I've read twice. It takes about an hour to listen to this on Audible. Um, great book. I like how candid he is and he has a sense of humor about stuff. Um, just like Sarah Blakely, who's also a billionaire. Um, she says, you know, I don't know why everyone has to always take themselves so seriously. Can't you do big business and still have some fun? Uh, or have some sense of humor, and Mark Cuban's that way as well. Um, he talks about how business is a 24-7, 365 game, um, all day, all year long, every single day, there's no timeouts. There's no like, oh, this is the, the month off, the sabbatical part. If you're in your niche and you read more than everyone else in your niche and you know more, then you become over-specialized. And that's what we're trying to do with billionaires.com. It's what we're trying to do with Family Office Club. And when we got to the short-term rental property space, we found there's only 14 books ever published on Airbnb short-term rentals that have four stars or more and have more than 10 reviews. And we bought all of them, and most of them were on Audible. Four of them I had to get in paperback. But we're reading every single book that's of any quality written on the space, because why would we not want to do that? And we've hired some people who are big service providers in our space, and they don't know some basic things that they could have read in a $7 book which is silly. And Mark Cuban's always had an edge because he said he was good at sales and he always did his homework. So he also said something kind of surprising because in the Shark Tank, he just destroys people sometimes, right? He's like overly direct, you know, and someone watching the show with him might be like, oh, why was he so rude to that person? And, you know, they, they cut it to make it extra dramatic, I'm sure. The basketball game, he might be screaming at someone and get kicked out of the arena or fined and he doesn't care. Um, but he said in the interview with him that you have to be kind and win over your team members. Being a jerk to everybody doesn't work, right? So I think that was an important insight to hear from him specifically um, that can translate to a lot of us that are running growing teams and you're expecting excellence, but you can't just be a harsh jerk to everyone around you because you're expecting the world or expecting something unrealistic. Larry Namer uh, was on stage at our New York event. What's most interesting is that he never had the work 14 hours a day grind mentality. You know, that's what I was digging in on Paul earlier today, like asking him, like how many of your clients are just like so smart, their IQ is so high and they're such geniuses, they work for an hour a day and they're worth $800 million or they work two hours a day. And he basically said none, but he admitted we attract families that are like us and you know, they're super hard workers. Um, but Larry Namer said something different. He said he tried to hire people smarter than him and create something really unique in the industry where he's taking movie trailers, he could get free access to that, that clip, which someone spent millions of dollars producing to make it engaging and then air it on his TV channel. So he got free production value. 
and grew that to 130 countries and then sold it for $3 billion to Comcast. He was super humble after speaking. He was out in the audience just networking with people for a couple hours. Same with Jeff Hoffman. Jeff Hoffman stood around for hours. He didn't come in with an entourage of security people and a video camera and shoo everybody away and hide in the back room or anything. Um, so he was really humble just about sharing all of his experiences. And you can see that video uh, on billionaires.com if you want to see what he said on stage at our New York event. Grant Cardone spoken at three of our events. And one of my favorite sayings of his is that uh, you can be obsessed or be average. And this goes hand in hand with being focused, right? You can't be obsessed about 19 niches. It'll still take you a lifetime to even become an amateur in 19 niches. If you're obsessed about one or two things, then you become an absolute expert and maybe no other short-term rental property fund has spent the time to read those 14 books that cost $7 each. Maybe no one else who runs a family office club bothered to read 100 books written by billionaires and interview 100 billionaires, right? So that edge is what I'm looking to gain and share with you guys along the way. And I see Cardone might not have the same personality as you, right? He's a pretty unique personality out there. Um, but he's doggedly persistent and he's evolved himself from being a sales trainer into really evolving into a real estate um, investment manager um, and has, I think, raised over a billion dollars from investors is what he, what he claims now at this point, so which is quite impressive. Um, I spent uh, two hours with this billionaire last Friday. Um, Don Winter is the founder of DLP Capital. Um, he's in his 40s. He's one of the younger billionaires um, that I've gotten to know, <clears throat> and I'm just getting to know him better right now. I took some notes during our meeting, and he's going to answer our formal questions for billionaires.com, he said. But I took some notes, and one thing he said is that every issue in a company is a leadership issue. At the end of the day, you're the one that hired that person. You're the one that created the training process. You're the one that has the KPIs. You're the one that followed up or didn't, et cetera. So at the end of the day, it all rolls up. Like Gary Vaynerchuk says, like you're working for your team. Like you're, you need to be supporting your team and you're there to create an environment that's good for them to work in. Um, he says his number one investment of time every week is hiring new leaders and working with his top leaders. That's where he gets all of his leverage. Probably not hugely surprising, but he really emphasized that during the meeting. And he talked about one of the top five most important things. I said, well, Don, I know you're successful because you have these interesting strategies and you're focused on the niche of workforce housing and you've been able to do, um, well, you've been able to be operationally excellent, but what else has made you really successful? And he said this 20-year March mentality he got from Jim Collins of growing by 60% a year, which is a huge number. If you grow by 20% a year, you become a huge business over time. But for the last nine years straight, he's grown by 60% a year. They've never grown by 100% in a year, and they've never grown by less than 50% in a year. But it's that very consistent, and it doesn't have to be 60%, but just consistently, doggedly pursuing, like, what uh, Paul was talking about earlier, um, of that, that niche focus over and over again long-term. Um, he has a book about uh, building an elite organization um, that's also available on Amazon. Not sure if that one's on Audible or not. I have it in paperback form, um, but I encourage you to check out his book, and I'm reading that one uh, right now. Final one I want to mention is by Howard Marks. I just finished this book a couple days ago. This book is so priceless right now. If you have an investment team wondering what to do because of the economy. If you have investors that aren't sure if they should invest right now, just gift them this book and buy them this book and Howard Marks will sell them on investing with you. Because Howard says, when people think there's risk in the market and they start sitting on their hands, they say, oh, I don't know, it's, it's risky. Well, there's actually less risk because everything's at a 22% discount right now or whatever the percentage is in your niche or industry, your money goes much farther now so it's actually less risky. The fact that you think it's risky makes it less risky. 
And when everyone was excited having a party 18 months ago, then that's when there was risk. That's when you should have been afraid. Everyone's heard you should invest when there's blood on the streets. You've heard that so many times, it's not even valuable for someone to say it. But to actually have the conviction to invest right now and it's not a sure thing and things are you know, wobbly, that's when you can actually create more value. And, and Howard Marks says, when others are optimistic, that's when you should be pessimistic. And that when things are toxic, that's when he's had the best deals of his life. And so that was a big insight from, from that book, is to do what others are not doing, do the opposite of other people. And the other last takeaway from this book is that he said that they like to sit on their hands and then because of their reputation, attract a deal that they could add strategic value to. And for them, that means a distress deal. And because of that, when people come to them, then they get to write their own terms and do an amazing deal. Just like Oprah doing a Weight Watchers deal or Warren Buffett doing a railroad deal, etc. They want Warren's money for strategic reasons, just like they want Howard Marks' money. My interpretation of that is that not all of us are distressed buyers who sit on our hands and wait for a fire sale, but if we all think about our unique position, and I talked earlier this morning about seeing things first exclusively and at a better valuation, if you think like, what could I do so that pre-qualified deal flow comes to me and my niche first and exclusively, and then how do I negotiate that better valuation, then it might not be a distress deal you're looking for. It might just be a manufacturing deal or a cannabis deal or a VC deal of a very specific type. And because they came to you, now you have the leverage in that relationship to say, okay, well, I'll do that, but only on these terms, or only at this valuation. Just like Holly was referencing Shark Tank, and they say, yeah, I know you raised an $8 million valuation for your Nothing Burger mobile app idea that has nothing to show for it, but welcome to the Shark Tank. This thing is worth a million bucks on its best day. And they say, if you want it at a million dollar valuation, we'll give you some money. Otherwise, go back to your friends who will think you're worth eight times as much, but they don't add the shark value. So you don't want to be that harsh because you're not on TV trying to make it half comical, but that's essentially the reality of what's going on with strategic investors versus not.